Well, good morning, good morning again, and welcome to The Grove. I want to echo what Ali said, if this is your first time or maybe your first time back in a while. It is so good to see you. I know sometimes the first of the year is tough to kind of get to kind of like a, a good start. You're trying to catch up on maybe year-end things, and then all the stuff floods in for the new year, and so if this is your first time back with us in this new year, it is so good to see you. As well, we want to welcome everybody who's worshiping online, wherever you find yourself today. We are glad that you are a part of this service and a part of our church family. So, uh, as Ali mentioned, over the last several weeks, we have kind of been navigating this conversation around this idea of prayer. And of all of the questions that we get, of all of the things that probably feel most difficult as we try to unpack this idea of kind of a life of faith, of living into the example of Christ, for most of us, prayer is the part that feels a little hard to navigate. For maybe you, it's so much so that you just don't touch it. You just completely leave it alone because you've had some bad experience with prayer. Maybe a prayer has gone unanswered, or maybe anytime you try to approach prayer, it feels like the words hit the ceiling, come back down, or maybe you just don't even know what to say, and so you're like, well, I, I don't, maybe I'm just not a good prayer, and that's just not something that God designed me to do, and so I'll focus on something else uh, as it relates to our faith. But what has been encouraging for me over the course of this series is the way that I have seen you start to get comfortable with this idea of prayer. In the emails that I get from you and the conversations that I'm having from me, with you and the ways that you fill out those prayer requests on the connect cards that are in your bulletin, it feels like there's starting to be this shift and this kind of willingness to maybe step into this idea of prayer a little bit more. It may still feel uncomfortable. It may still feel foreign and new, but I am noticing the way that we're at least trying. And I think that's a wonderful thing, and so I want to commend uh, you for doing that. And if you're like, well, that wasn't me, well, there's still time. There's still time to kind of begin to approach this idea of prayer. Because really, the whole point of prayer is to create connection with you and God. Sometimes that means talking, sometimes that means listening, sometimes that just means being present, as you would do in your own relationships with your loved ones or your significant others, sometimes you talk, sometimes you listen, and sometimes you're just quiet in the car together, grateful that neither of you are speaking. The same thing can be true. The same thing can be true about God and with prayer. And so over the last couple of weeks, the attempt has been to maybe demystify prayer a little bit, maybe to make it feel a little bit more accessible and give you some encouragement and some tools as to how you can begin to develop a rhythm of prayer in your own life. And so today we save the best for last, I guess. I don't know what I was thinking when I kind of organized this sermon series, but today is all about kind of that category of prayer that for many of us is either why we stopped praying or why we're cynical about prayer or why we've never kind of begun to pray in the first place, but it's that category of prayer uh, that doesn't get a response. It's when you've stayed up late at night, you've kind of made your requests known to God, you've had a loved one who was sick or near death, and you really, really prayed, and nothing happened. For many of us, these unanswered prayers are kind of the biggest obstacle to prayer. Even if we have some kind of fumbled, half-hearted attempt to muster up some words to God about what we need, what we hope, what we want in our life, it's when they go unanswered that we determine that Either we did something wrong and we're not good at prayer, or prayer doesn't work, or God doesn't care and God doesn't listen. 
most of the conversations that I have with people who have kind of left the church and left the faith is usually around one of two issues. One, it's some kind of hurt or damage that's been done to them by the church, or it's a perceived hurt and damage that's been done to them by God because God didn't answer their prayers. And so today I just want to talk a little bit about unanswered prayers. And I have to, I have to kind of qualify this, that this is, in a lot of ways, not something that we can get our arms all the way around. There is a lot to prayer that is a mystery. And so if you were hoping this morning to walk away with a formula or an equation or a blueprint about how you can finally get all of your prayers answered, uh, you're going to have to come back next week because I don't, I don't have it today. In fact, most of my education in my early life around unanswered prayers uh, comes from the poet Garth Brooks. And so this is kind of what we're working with this morning. But if you look at the theology of what Garth says, it's actually pretty good. Not, not all country songs have good theology, but Garth's isn't bad. But uh, when we think about this category of unanswered prayers, it's usually about something in our life that isn't the way that we want it to be. There's some recognition uh, that our current reality is different for our hoped-for future. There's this gap. There's this gap between what we see, what we experience, our current state of our relationships, or the current health of ourselves or a loved one. There's something in our reality that we want different. This preferred future state, this hoped-for state. And it's in that gap that we kind of wrestle. There's kind of this metaphor that you see over and over again in Scripture about this gap between like our reality and our hopeful future state. And it's this idea of a desert or a wilderness or a wasteland. All throughout Scripture, you see people spending time in this place. And it's a period of searching, of wrestling, of wandering, of walking, of journeying, and not knowing how long you'll be in this place. Uh, there's kind of a, an idea, a word that's kind of developed out of this concept that's kind of in vogue, and it's called liminal space. It's this in-between space, this in-between place. And it's all based on this idea like that where you are is not where you want to be, and you don't know how long or if ever you'll get out of this current place to this future place. My guess is you have either experienced this in your own life or you're in it now, and if you're not, you will be shortly. Just the nature of human life. This nature that inevitably things will not go the way that we want. We'll experience difficulty, hardship, some type of suffering in life. That is the guarantee. I think one of the disservices that's often done to people of faith is you hear this version of faith that if you live a certain way or act a certain way or do enough good, you can reach this place that's devoid of all suffering. And that's, that's just not biblical and it's not in scripture and it's not true. What Jesus promises us is that there will be suffering. And so what we have to learn as people of faith as it relates to prayer is how do we, how do we suffer? How do we navigate this place between what we want and where we are? And so typically what happens is there's a couple of different responses to this desert. There's a couple of different responses to the way that we interact with our current reality and we reconcile our kind of hoped-for future. And the first is just denial. This is kind of the first place that we come to. If we have a present reality that is uncomfortable, that is not ideal, that maybe we didn't choose or want, one of the ways that we can approach this is just to ignore reality. 
Just pretend like things aren't the way that they are. Maybe you've had a loved one who's navigated this with their children or with the state of their relationship or in some other category of your life. You're just, I'm not going to choose to open that bill. We're just going to leave that in the drawer. And if we don't open it and we don't look at that bottom line, then it's not real. Or if I don't name the things that are actually happening in the lives of my kids, then I don't have to deal with it. And it's this way that we protect ourselves. And it's this way that we insulate ourselves from the difficulty, from the pain and the suffering that comes from our present reality. We'll just deny reality itself. Well, we can't stay in that place forever because eventually, no matter how good we are at this kind of aspect of denial, eventually we have to face the truth. Eventually reality comes crashing down upon us in one way or another. Now it may take months or years or decades but it is hard to eventually, inevitably, escape reality. So that's kind of the first response to this desert that we find when our reality does not align with our hoped-for future. The other response, and this is kind of popular today too, it's actually a really old concept, um, but it's this idea that we just we try harder, we just lean into determination. Uh, there's kind of a, this kind of Greek philosophical approach called Stoicism that just gives up future hope that things will get better. And it just says, just learn to like grit your teeth and suffer through it. That it just like says, fully embrace your reality and just try harder. Lean in a little bit more. Free yourselves mentally from the attachment that there will ever be anything good in your future. It's to let go of hope and to fully embrace where you currently are. Now, there are aspects of that that are true. There are aspects of that where we do and can impact our own reality. We can, with a little bit of effort, make differences in our lives. We're not kind of helpless in the sense that we just have to lean back and hope that God is this deterministic God that he'll move all of the pieces on the board for us in our life. But the problem with determination is we have all experienced in you know, some type of health crisis or some type of financial crisis or a relational issue there's only so much that we can control. There's only, only so much about our current reality that we have the ability to impact, to shift, and to change. And so inevitably what happens when we lean into this kind of deterministic approach to dealing with kind of this gap between where we are and where we want to be is we run out of effort, we run out of energy, and we're once again back where we started. And then the last approach is different than the other two, and this is the one that I think maybe is most common as it relates to prayer, is we just give up hope, and we kind of fall into this place of despair. Now, this isn't exactly stages that we go through, but sometimes they can be. You know, I don't know that humanity maps so perfectly onto these four or three categories of how we navigate the gap between reality and this future hope-for state. But for some of us, when we're in a really difficult place, when we're suffering, we're in the, when we are in the midst of pain and hardship, we just stop hoping. We give up. We take ourselves out of the story because we have tried. Maybe we have tried to affect change in our own life and that has not gone the way we've wanted or our efforts seem and feel futile. We've prayed. We've gotten on our knees. We've asked God to do something and God hasn't. And so we just give up the idea that maybe one day in the future things will look different, things will get better. I'll always be 
be in this place. I'll never have a good relationship with my child, or I'll never be able to kind of develop the career that I want, or we start to use these words, I'll always and I'll never, which means that there's no ability for difference in the future. The future is unchangeable, and we were forever stuck in our current place, this place of despair. Now, in the midst of this desert, in the midst of this place where there's a gap between where we are, our current reality, and where we hope to be, there's a fourth way. There's another option that Scripture shows us. We don't have to live in denial. We don't have to kind of white-knuckle it and just try a little harder. We don't need to give up hope and lean into despair. There's a fourth way, and it's a version of prayer. And it's a version of prayer that most churches and most kind of denominations aren't that good at practicing. It's a tradition that we inherit from the Jewish faith. And it's a word that is called lament. This is this word that makes up a large portion of our scripture that we don't even realize it. Almost two-thirds of the Psalms, a whole bunch of the minor prophets, and the book of, believe it or not, Lamentations. If you didn't get that, I'll explain it to you after. It's all based on this idea of lament. Now, let me show you some examples of what lament looks like. But lament is a certain type of prayer. And oftentimes, we feel like it's a little impolite. It's a little too raw. It's a little unprofessional. It kind of shows too much emotion, and it's a little out of control for many of us. It's this, maybe you've read this in the Psalms, and you're like, I can't believe they talk to God that way. Let me show you a couple of examples. So this all comes out of the Psalms. So here's Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Long before there was emo music, there were laments. This was like, you know, the... 4th century BC version of Dashboard Confessionals, for those of you who get that music reference. It's like this really angsty, dramatic, like, why, Lord, why, how long am I going to be in this place? Where are you, God? It's this really honest conversation. And it's honest about two things. It's honest about your current reality. And it's honest about the preferred, for, the preferred future. It doesn't just lean into one aspect or another, but it wrestles with them both. And it acknowledges that, God, we believe that you're the only one who has the ability to impact any change. So, God, where we are is not what I want. And I believe that you can help me make the future different. Here's another example. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, what you'll notice about some of these laments is that feels a little accusatory, right? It's like, all right, God, it's your fault. God, why aren't you doing something? And I think that's an important aspect of lament that we have to kind of name and acknowledge because it's not just saying that, God, I'm helpless, that, God, you messed all this up, but it's connecting God's ability to act to the promises that God has given us. It's saying, hey, God, you've saved us in the past, God, you've saved people, you've healed people, you've rescued people, you've moved and worked in the world before. Why aren't you doing it now? Where are you? Like, it's, 
it doesn't have a low view of God. It actually has this really high view of this God who is capable of making a difference in the world. And so it's saying, God, look at the way that the world is or look at the way that my world is. Where are you and why aren't you working? I know that you can. What's the deal? Here's one last example. This one may be the most popular. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? If there was one prayer that kind of summarizes the emotion, the heartache behind unanswered prayers, it might be this one. How long, Lord? Feels like you forgot about me. It feels like you don't hear me when I pray to you. It feels like you don't care about me. God, it feels like I'm wrestling and I'm losing. God, my heart is sorrowful. This place that I'm in is painful. How long, God? My guess is we have all prayed a version of this prayer before in our lives. Independent of the category or the reason, the motivation behind it, we've all had a place or a season in our life where we have felt forgotten by God. Maybe it kept you from the church for a period of time, or maybe it kept you from praying for a period of time. But it's this acknowledgement that, God, you don't feel very personal, and you don't seem very powerful. And so, are you going to do something? But I think there's a, a skill that we can develop as we practice lamenting, as we lean into this ability to name what's happening, our current reality, and connecting it to God's ability to act. So here's what it does. This is why I think lament is such a powerful tool for us, especially for those of us who don't feel all that comfortable being honest with God. We feel like maybe we kind of have to soften our punches and pull them back a little bit because God can't handle our honesty as if God doesn't actually know how we feel about what's happening or actually know what we truly want or the way that we wish our life or the world was different. This is what lament does. Lament connects God's past promise with my present suffering, hoping for a better future. Remember those kind of three ways that we interact with that gap between our reality and our hope for future? Denial, determination, and despair. Each one of those is deficient in one aspect of time, past, present, or future. But what lament does is it connects all of them together. Lament names. God, I believe it's an expression of faith in addition to an expression of frustration or fear. It says, God, I believe based on your previous faithfulness, God, based on your inherent ability to impact the world, based on your goodness, God, based on your love and your mercy, God, let me acknowledge that I believe that you're capable because I've seen it in the past. I've read the stories in the past. I sing the songs about your ability in the past to be true to your promises. And so I need that, God, to be present in my current suffering, in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids, at school with those kids who are bullying me, God, in my health or the health of a loved one, God, in the midst of my finances or in my job search, God, I need you present in my suffering. 
And God, I hope and I believe that through you and through your activity in my life, a better future is possible. So let me show you an example of one of these lament prayers and kind of its fullness through the different kind of phases and um, components that it begins to name and talk to God. So this comes out of Isaiah chapter 64. And the book of Isaiah is written by Isaiah. And it's written in a time period when all of the Jewish people were probably in this place, in this season, in this current reality where they were needing to lament. They find themselves in captivity. They've been taken from their homelands. Everything about their current way of life is, is gone. They have no ability to worship God in the temple, which is where that they knew and could trust that the presence of God was available. And so they're in a foreign place, away from their ability to connect to God, not able to live into their their customs and their laws and their rules in a way that assured them that God would be active and present in their life. And they're unsure of how long they'll be in this place. They're in the midst of a literal desert, wondering, waiting, crying out, how long, O Lord, will we be here? Have you forgotten us? Will you forget about us forever? And this is what Isaiah writes. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. This is the beginning of Isaiah 64. This is Isaiah starting to name that what he needs in this moment is the God who is incarnate, the God who is with us, the God who has shown up in the lives of his people previously. There are numerous instances in scripture prior to Isaiah writing these words where God was visibly, literally present. What Isaiah is saying is, God, just like you did before, we need you here now with us. He goes on and he names some of those moments. When you accomplished wonders beyond all our expectations, when you came down, mountains quaked before you. When God revealed himself to Moses in kind of the presentation of the commandments, God literally shows up. The mountains quake and tremble. And Isaiah is saying, In the same way that you did then, God, I want you, we need you to do it now. And then he goes on, he kind of softens his tone a little bit, and he reflects, this is kind of really the heart of lament. From ancient times, it's been a long time, God, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God but you, and you are the one who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This is the hope that's contained in, the, in prayers of lament. This trust and confidence that God will act, even if we have to wait. But that God will act on behalf of those who wait for him. And then it changes a little bit of a tone and he goes on and he says, But God, you were angry when we sinned. You hid yourself when we did wrong. It's not just a pointing the finger at God, like, God, where are you? Why don't you show up? There's an honesty in this. There's a vulnerability and a transparency that Isaiah prays. It's a words of repentance, of acknowledging that, God, I'm complicit in some of this. Some of the reasons that I'm in the place that I'm in today, even though this reality is hard and difficult and I'm suffering because of it, I have to acknowledge my role and responsibility in the midst of it. And so, God, let me name that. God, I need you to come and act, but I kind of did this to myself. He goes on, he says, 
Lord, we're at a place now where no one calls on your name and no one bothers to hold on to you. So in the middle of Isaiah's lament, he's lamenting that nobody laments anymore. He's like, listen, God, we've stopped praying. We've fully given in to despair. We've created this mess. We've waited for you to show up. You haven't come yet. And so we've stopped praying. We've stopped asking for you to move and to act and to work in our life. I think this is where many of us get to when, it's, when we have these prayers that just don't get answered or don't get solved or it feels like God's ignoring us. We just stop praying. And then he goes on. And he says, but now, Lord, you are our father and we are the clay and you are the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. This is a call for God to do something new. A trust and a hope that the last things are not the final things. That what has come was not all that will be. That there is a hope for a future state. That God, that you'll show up and that you'll change things. That you'll make a difference in our lives. That you will begin to create and to make something new. And he goes on. And he says... But gaze now on your people, all of us. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Our holy, glorious house where our ancestors praised you has gone up in flames. All that we treasured has become a ruin. This is kind of that like crescendo of desperation. This is where Isaiah recognizes that he's not just praying on his own behalf, but on behalf of a whole group and generation of people. That, God, things have gotten really bad. They're maybe at their worst. It's almost feeling hopeless. And then he ends with these words that, again, kind of capture the heartache and the sorrow of these prayers of lament. And he says, after all this, will you hold back, Lord? Will you keep silent? After all of this, will you hold back, Lord? And will you keep silent? This is that prayer of like, God, are you there? God, will you be there? Can I trust that you're coming? This is at the heart of lament. And I think one of the challenges as we start to think about praying these prayers of lament or the things that keep us from praying these prayers or the reality that we find ourselves in when it gets too hard and it gets too difficult and we don't know how to pray or what to say is I think there are a couple of reminders that I'd probably like to leave us with this morning in the midst of all of this. Because it's easy to get overwhelmed and consumed by our present reality or to look back and say, gosh, it was a whole lot better back then or to have doubt and despair about whether we'll ever get to a preferred future state, whether we can actually be hopeful. And the first one is this, is to trust that you're in a good story. I think one of the things that happens in the midst of unanswered prayers, in the midst of hopelessness and despair, is that we feel like we're all on our own. We lean into this place of despair, determination that it's all up to us, that there's nobody acting on our behalf, that we're on an island, and it's up to us to figure out how to get off, how to change our circumstances. And so this is, I think, the difference between faith and philosophy. Philosophy leans into our own ability to navigate the challenges ahead of us. Faith reminds us that we don't have to do it by ourselves, that we are a part of a really good story 
even if the chapter that we're currently in doesn't feel that way, or even if the last seven chapters that we have gone through don't feel that way. If you think about it, if you were to watch a movie or to read a book and it presents a hero or a character and this character wanted something or was trying to achieve something and they immediately got it and the book ended, you wouldn't like that story. That wouldn't be a compelling story if there were no obstacles, if there were no challenges, if Luke Skywalker didn't have to leave home and to figure out how to use the force to come back and be able to combat Darth Vader. If he just like made the world better in act one, you would have been really bored and there wouldn't be nine other films and because they're not compelling stories. And I know that when you're in the midst of a difficult situation, you don't care that much about whether this is a compelling story. But what I hope that you remember is that you are still part of a good story and that even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, that there is good coming. The second thing that I want to remind you to do is to have eyes to start to look for the storyteller or evidence of the fact that there is a storyteller beyond you. This is connected to this first idea, this first idea that you were a part of a good story and that God is doing good things in your life. This is why in previous weeks when we've looked at the contents of the Lord's Prayer and there seems to be this large component that acknowledges, that names and identifies all that there is to be thankful for in our life currently, this is because this helps us to practice looking for evidence of the storyteller in our own life. If all you focus on is what's missing and what's absent, guess what you'll continue to see? All that's missing and all that's absent. Our eyes are really good at becoming myopic on the things that we tend to focus on or we choose to focus on within our heart. If you've ever done a gratitude practice or a thankfulness practice, what you've noticed is that the more that you begin to name the good things in your life, the more good things in your life you begin to see evidence of. It's not an accident. It's not some trick. It's just the reality that we are inclined to focus on the things that aren't there and miss kind of the forest for the trees of all of the goodness that exists in our lives, all of the ways that God is already active in our life. And so in the midst of difficult seasons, how could we begin to develop the ability to start to look for evidence of the storyteller? And then the last is you got to stay in the story. It is easy to just pull the ripcord and hit the eject button and say, you know what, God? You haven't done what I've asked or this hasn't worked the way I wanted. I'm still in this difficult place and I'm still suffering. And so I'm going to give up. I'm just going to acquiesce and resign to the fact that life will always look this way. But that's a really, really lousy way to end your story. And for those of you who maybe feel like you're in this place today, may I encourage you to come back into the story. Because the story of the Christian faith is not a story that everything will be good in your life, in your lifetime. The hope of the Christian story, of which we are all a part of, is that one day our collective story will be good. So does it mean that you get the job that you're asking for? Does it mean that your loved one will be healed? Does it mean that all of your relationships will become healthy and positive and strong? doesn't mean that. But the Christian hope is not based on the circumstances of our current life, but in the promise of what the reality will look like in the future. A bigger reality when Christ comes again and all will be made, made well. 
The last promise that Christ gives us in scripture, he says, is behold, I am making all things new. This is the hope and the prayer within lament that there is a one day future of which is coming where God steps in and begins to make all things new. Now, for those of you who are like, yeah, but you didn't give me a formula on what to say to get my prayers answered. You're right. If I had it, I'd use it myself. It's hard. Being in this place feels like a desert or a wilderness, not knowing what's next or how to move forward or where God is in the midst of it. But may we be people who have the faith to be honest with God, to say, God, you have been faithful in the past, and God, I'm confident that you can be faithful in the future. And so will you move and work in my life? Will you move and work in my relationships, in my career, in my family, in my body, and in my health? May we remember that we're part of a good story. May we start to look for evidence of the storyteller's work. And may we trust that if we stay in the story long enough, we'll see just how good it truly is. Let me close us in prayer. Gracious God, the difficulty in praying is not knowing what's going to happen next. And so as people of faith, let us be encouraged to lean into our faith, to trust that you are at work in the world, that the second coming of your son is the fulfillment of all of our lament cries, God move, work, and act. Even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, God, may we trust that in the end of the age, all will be made well and all will be made new. God, let us lean into the confidence that you have created us and put us in a good story and that you are still working in it. We pray this in your name. Amen.